Hey, so it's November 8th, 2022, and this is going to be another walking conversation. Um, but I'm going to have to not walk quite so much because being November, there, most of the leaves are on the ground. So I think it might be a little bit too loud. It's, it's actually kind of windy, too. I've got the... Um, because it's, <laughs> it's called a dead cat, not a very um, vegan name for the little uh, muff that goes on top of the microphone to, uh, to like the wind, the wind noise remover. Uh, there's, so there's, I hope you're not going to hear the shh of like wind in the microphone, but there is, you can hear the wind in the trees and leaves falling and then me walking and, and crunching. So if you're hearing this, it means that I've deemed it of sufficient audio quality to release. If not, this is just me talking to myself, and you'll never know. So I woke up uh, too late for the uh, full eclipse of the moon, which I think was around 4.09 Eastern, U.S. Eastern Time. Um, but apparently uh, it's going to have a... Uh, from, from an astrological perspective, it's a big deal. I don't really understand that. And, uh, but we do know that we're, uh, this is kind of a big day in the U.S., at least, and arguably worldwide, uh, because of the midterms. And, you know, I don't know. You'll, you'll, you might, if you listen to this today, if I manage to get it uh, published today, you, you will not know what will have happened. But t- tomorrow, um, presumably something will have happened. Um, you know, I'd, so I don't know, you know who will win in Pennsylvania or, or Texas or, or Georgia uh, or Arizona or, or here on our Senate race in North Carolina. Um, I suspect, based on uh, everything I've been seeing and hearing and reading and people I've been talking to, that there will be a great deal that will still be unsettled at that point, and maybe for days, weeks, months to come. But, you know, I clearly have a uh, opinion about which direction I hope we move in. And it's occurred to me, you know, I, I voted a couple, like a week ago, early voting, and the the process is extremely binary, right? You just have a choice of one or the other. And I know this is, this is kind of the very end, the tail end of electoral politics, right? So that there's a lot more nuance upstream where, you know, people are vying to become candidates and, and people are, are vying to support candidates and mold those candidates to their views and lobby and convince and, you know, backroom deals and you know, another non-vegan metaphor where the sausage is made. Uh, yeah, and so uh, I understand that there's a lot of subtlety and nuance at that stage, perhaps. But at the stage where ordinary people get to participate, the vast, vast majority of us who have an opportunity to have a say, to cast our votes, it becomes at this point... Uh, fairly binary and dichotomous, yes or no, this one or that one. Um, And 
the dichotomies have grown wider and steeper over the last decade or two. Uh, maybe, you know, seems like the last 30 years has been uh, increasing that kind of polarization um, to the point now where it looks to me like there's one party that is interested in the idea of vote counting and accuracy and one party that is only interested in retaining power. Um, and of course, that scares me a great deal. You know, I, uh, I have a genetic connection to people who had to flee, some of whom didn't make it. Um, you know, a, a Europe that had gone fascist that had abandoned the rule of law, that had uh, focused on power and might as opposed to any sort of uh, constraint on that power. And, you know, there's certainly a, a spidey sense going on inside me wondering, is this the time to leave, to start preparing to look for some other place? Um, you know, in hindsight, looking back at my relatives, my grandparents and my mother, specifically, who fled Austria in 1939, uh, in hindsight, it was clear that where things were going and that it was a very smart thing that they did to get out while they could. And I am literally living proof of the wisdom and foresight and sagacity of that decision. And Yet looking ahead into the future right now, uh, it's not at all clear to me what I should do, where is safe, where is there a life to be made, if, if not in the United States, then where else? And if there is something here, then what and uh, how does one go about participating in it and having a good life. And of course, it's not just the United States, and it's not just politics, right? There is also, you know, ecology and biology that I would, you know, arguably is a, is a bigger story, even. And, you know, if, let's say, the Democrats, you know, do manage to pull out a... Uh, a stunning victory. Like, are we saved? Is everything, is everything okay then? Like, back to that dichotomous um, outcome. Okay, so, you know, the people I voted for and the people I rooted for and the people I supported have won. Well, you know what? Those people have been part of a tradition that has, you know, this Western capitalist, materialist, separation from nature, um, exploiting other people, extracting from the earth without honoring it and without giving back and without ecological wisdom, right? This, this short civilization, just a few thousand years, has managed to, you know, bring us to the, the, the brink of total environmental catastrophe and destruction. So is that group winning going to solve our problems?
So uh, anyway, now I'm, uh, you can hear the, the ground underneath my feet changing. I'm in the, uh, the, pine, the pine woods area right now near the, fr the front of the house. So you might hear some traffic. That was a car going by. I don't, I don't know what you can hear uh, or not. But I'm now coming into a little clearing. So it's just mostly pine needles and some pine cones at my feet. So over the past uh, two months now, I have been uh, practicing a, uh, a form of Chinese energy medicine um, daily morning practices called Yijinjing. And I think they're, they're related to Qigong or part of it or the same underlying philosophy. I'm no expert. I'm just following the videos and doing the the movements and the and the thinking and the breathing. Um, I was encouraged to participate in the program by my friend Michael Gelb, who's been on the podcast twice, um, who first introduced me to mind-body um, medicine and mind-body healing and the fact that our bodies are maps of our minds and vice versa. And when I first read his book in uh, 1988, uh, I first encountered uh, body learning. And so Michael told me about Robert Peng, P-E-N-G, and his courses online. And so that's what I've been doing. So what the, the course basically is, first we learn you know, some basics and then some breathing techniques that are a little esoteric and like, a little different from what you normally see and different from things that I've been doing. I've been doing breath work for for decades, and this was, this was new, new techniques to me. And after that first week, we then focused on individual organs and movements corresponding to those organs designed to heal the qi energy, the, the vital life force, the universal energy, as it, as it flows through and inhabits those different organs. And... The first one we did was the lungs. And every organ um, in Chinese medicine is associated, and this is again me just quoting Robert Peng, so uh, I'm just passing it on. I have no in-depth understanding of any of this, truly. Uh, each organ is connected with, two, with, a, with a pair of emotions. And organs themselves are paired. So... The first one we did, the lungs, when qi gets stuck in the lungs, when the energy doesn't flow properly, when there's too little of it or it's too stagnant or too intense, um, the resulting emotion is, is sadness or grief. And Robert Peng points out that, you know, if, if someone has just lost someone or something precious to them, grief is a healthy, normal response. The problem is when it becomes stagnant, when we can't get out of grief, when there's always grief, or there's insufficient grief and a, a kind of repression of it. And so the exercise we do is designed to transform the grief. And when you think about it, if you were, if you were to ask me before I took the course, what would I want grief transformed into? I would say, well, you know, joy, happiness, pleasure, right? Because that's kind of the opposite. So when I think about, you know, an outcome that I would want or that, you know, 
when I have experienced grief at the end of that grief process, I would like to be joyful again, which corresponds to how I coach and to the, the technologies that Peter Bregman has developed and that I've helped him refine um, that we discuss in, in our book, You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps. The second of which is identify an energizing outcome. And so when we coach people, when I coach someone, I always, you know, right up front, as soon as we've established some rapport, I want to, and I have a basic understanding of their situation and the context, the first thing I want to know is not, well, what's your problem or how do we solve it or anything like that. I just want to know, what are you going for? What's your energizing outcome? And you can think of this as someone like gets in the car, turns on the ignition and they've got a GPS and they don't, you know, the GPS is like their coach going to going to help them, guide them. Um, not The coach isn't going to drive for them, but kind of, you know, offer perspectives and thoughts. And first thing the GPS wants to know, of course, is, well, where are we now? So, you know, that happens very quickly. When I, when I first had a car with a navigation system, a 2002 Toyota Prius, it was the first, one, first nav system I'd ever seen, you know, you, t- you turn on the car and sometimes... It'd be quite a while before it would like connect to the satellites. And then when we um, got another car that didn't have GPS, of course, by that time I was spoiled. So I had to go and get a, a Garmin, the one that you, know, you attach with a suction cup to your front windshield. And that sometimes would take like five, ten minutes to acquire the satellites. So the first, the first thing it wants to know is, okay, well, where are we? The second thing he wants to know, before it, can, before it can even engage, is where are you going? What's the destination? Right? If you don't put in a destination, it's not going to interact with you. It's not going to say, hey, go left, go right. It's like that line from Alice in Wonderland. If you don't very much care which way you're going, then it doesn't matter which road you take to get there. So, you know, that's very much like coaching. So... You know, first, well, tell me a little bit about your situation right now. So I'm acquiring satellites. And then, okay, where do you want to go? What is your uh, energizing outcome? What's, what's, what, and by energizing, we mean an outcome that's worth enough to you, that's meaningful enough to you, that's clear enough to you, that's positive, an actual, like, a good thing, not just getting away, right, that you're willing to put the energy in to get there. Change is hard. Human change, humans resist change a lot. We don't like to, you know, put effort into hard things. And it's got to be worth it to us. So the question is, what is an outcome that will energize you enough to go do the work, to engage in introspection, to practice new things, to develop the emotional courage to feel what it feels like to, especially if we're tra- changing, you know, kind of behaviors that we use as self-soothing or as distracting to avoid feeling unwanted sensations, emotions, thoughts, feelings. What outcome is going to energize you enough to actually go get it? And so very often, the first time, the first pass at helping clients develop an energizing outcome, and this is perfectly natural, is their energizing outcome is going to be to get away from where they are. 
Okay, so if I'm coaching someone on health, it's like I want to not be fat. I want to not be sick. I want to not be in pain. I want to not be tired all the time. I want to not be in a low mood. If I'm coaching someone on a career issue or, you know, starting a business or managing a team, it might be, well, I, I want to, uh, you know, not, not be, you know, I don't know. It's, it's actually with, with, with business people, it's, it's more clear that they have a positive that they're going for. But even so, um, it could be something like, I don't want to be so distracted all the time. Uh, you know, so people, people come and they pay money and they exert effort largely um, to avoid or get away from bad things. Right? That's just how our brains are wired, this negativity bias. So if I'm, if I'm feeling scattered as an entrepreneur and unfocused, I'll say, well, I want to be more focused. But really, the orientation is I want to stop doing what I'm doing now. I want to stop experiencing what I'm experiencing now. So that's where the, the outcome, even if it's a positive outcome, and, and I train my coaching students to do this, when they, say, when they say a negative, you know, I want to not be diabetic, or I want to not be tired all day, then we ask, well, what would you, if you weren't, what would you have instead? So we get them to visualize a positive future, as opposed to a future simply the absence of a negative. But even there, and this is, this is good work, and it's really helpful, but even there, and you see, we're still talking about getting away from the negative because we've just defined the outcome in terms of the opposite. The opposite of unfocused is focused. The opposite of unhealthy is healthy. And so now we can put that into the GPS, but it doesn't, you know, a GPS is, is, is a mechanical um, cybernetic system that's going to give you feedback based on your current position and uh, potential routes to your destination. But life is not like that. Human beings are not like that. Our, our life paths are not like that. And so, you know, we, we, we like to think that there is a, a very cut and dried path to where we want to go, but we, of course, we, we know and we discover every single time we try to get there that there isn't, that it's going to be twists and turns, that there's going to be um, forward and backward motion, there's going to be confusion, false starts, and we, we often discover that where we thought we wanted to go wasn't where we wanted to go in the, at all. Sometimes we discover that by getting somewhere else that we say, oh, this is even better. Um, sometimes we discover it by getting to what we thought we wanted and realizing that it wasn't, right? And so, you know, there's all these wisdom sayings about the, the, the destination is really there just as an excuse to have the journey, and it's the journey that's the important thing. Right. But getting back to the Yi Jing Jing and transforming the grief in our lungs through these practices, we don't, in Yi Jing Jing, aim for joy. What Robert Peng says, the transformational emotion for the lungs is kindness. 
from grief to kindness. When we heal our lungs, we transform, we, we melt away the grief, we feel the grief melt away and transform into kindness. And he says, let the energy of kindness heal your lungs. Not the energy of joy, of happiness, of pleasure, but kindness. So that confused me. I don't see an obvious connection between grief and kindness. And so then Robert Peng explained. He says, kindness is what heals grief. It's not joy. If you go out, if you have someone who's grieving, who's lost a parent, a, a, a sibling, a friend, a spouse, a child, you cannot heal them with joy. You can't go up to them and be all smiley and happy, tell jokes, laugh and dance and frolic and give them good food and expect them to heal. That, you, you, we know intuitively that, that that doesn't work. That wouldn't work, right? So the, the opposite may be joy, but the healing emotion, the, the direction to then help them get back to joy is through kindness, through simply being there with them, through sharing kind words, encouragement, or sharing no words at all. And simply doing kindnesses, showing them, showing the person who has lost, who is now feeling diminished and like they belong less to the world, like a connection has been severed, to show them connection, to show them that you don't need them to be joyful, right? That would be incredibly disempowering to have that kind of conditional feeling and expression for someone who is grieving to say, well, I'm sorry you're grieving. As soon as you're happy, come back and we'll talk. Right? That's not kindness. Kindness over time can help people naturally heal grief and move back into life. Now, some of the Yijingjing transformations are more or less the opposites. So, for example... Um, the, the spleen is related to worry and we are instructed to transform worry into confidence. To feel the confidence in our bodies, in our minds. And I found that actually quite empowering because we'll be sitting and they'll say, well, notice any uh, worry in your spleen and in your life. And so I was just sitting there after doing the, the movements and feeling all the things that I worry about. You know, they would come up, you know, almost, I would say unbidden, but he bid them. <laughs> he said, you know, notice any worry in your spleen and in your life. And, and so I was able to sort of say, okay, so the worry, I'm going to localize it in my spleen, at least in my mind. And then transform it into confidence. Well, for, what, what that did for me, it wasn't a thought process. It was, it was physical. Like, oh, okay. Confidence would feel like this. Sitting up a little straighter, a little taller. Grounding a little more firmly. Breathing and just connecting with some energy. Like, okay, whatever comes, I can handle. 
And so in that case, you could say that confidence is kind of the opposite of worry. And so the way to heal worry is by checking in, by tapping into the energy of consciousness, of, 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 of confidence. Um, similarly, with the, large, with the large intestines, um, stagnation transforms into, well, relief. You know, that's a little, actually, it's a little different, right? Stagnation, you think the opposite of stagnation is movement, energy, progress. But no, and, and we're, you know, we can be literal about being constipated. That the, uh, the opposite of constipation, you know, the healthy opposite of constipation isn't movement. You know, that a little too much of the opposite of constipation is also... <laughs> digestively unpleasant and unhealthy diarrhea, right, where things are really, really moving, but uh, rather relief. Like, okay, I was, something was holding on to me or I was holding on to something and letting go brings relief as opposed to its exact opposite of progress. And once there's relief, then we can start talking about progress. The small intestines, um, the, the unhealthy chi in the small intestines is confusion. And because, you know, he says the, the small intestines are the organ of discernment, that their job is to assess every single molecule that enters them, as in, where does this go? Is this nourishing or does this need to go out? Is this good right now? Is it bad right now? And of course, it's, it's contextual, right? So something at the top we might not want to take it in, might not want to absorb it, but near the bottom, we might. Or we might want to send it to the large intestine where further processing will take place. So if the small intestine is all about discernment, then confusion is the, the um, unhealthy chi, the stuck chi, the, the, the weak chi, or the too intense chi, and it transforms to clarity. So confusion into clarity is kind of a, uh, you know, a binary opposite flip. But what we're looking for is not necessarily the opposite, but we're looking for the antidote. We're looking for what heals. Because right? if, if, if we stay with the energizing outcome as the opposite then what often happens is we, we, the energy in energizing outcome is, ends up being about opposing. Right? Because we want the opposite. If we want the opposite, we have to oppose. And so we have to take an oppositional stance. And essentially that means fighting what is. So in personal health coaching, that's often where people come from. When they come to me, they've been fighting with themselves. They've been fighting with their family. They've been fighting with their environment. They've been fighting with the vending machine in the break room. They've been fighting with the 7-Eleven on the route to work. They've been fighting with the pint of Ben and Jerry's in the freezer. They've been fighting with their own mind. 
The energy of fighting is from the sympathetic nervous system. It's our fight or flight response. So fighting often takes the form of aggression and it often takes the form of avoidance. So if if I am in sympathetic arousal and I'm seeing the world as threatening, that there is danger over every hill around every corner, then that energy that I bring to trying to heal myself, trying to heal my relationship with food or with movement or with stillness or with sleep, the energy has to be mediated through that sense of threat. Everything is a threat, so I'm going to perpetuate the battle. And some battles cannot be won with force. Right? Short term, we can looks it looks like we can win them with force. But long term, we can't. Long term, I'm not going to achieve my ideal diet through white knuckling willpower. Long term, I'm not going to maintain my exercise habit through self-discipline. It has to turn into something more integral, more joyful. And here we are on election day for midterms. And from my perspective, it's a fight against (laughs) hatred. A fight against hatred. I can hear the irony in it. And, and, and I'm not, un, not disrespecting the need for fighting. My father was in World War II. He signed up to go fight Hitler. Right? Hitler embodied hate. And the opposite of hate at that point was not to sit and meditate and just smile and be kind to everyone and and hope that, you know, appeasement was going to work. You know, arguably there was a time for a different kind of diplomacy, a different kind of prevention in the 20s and 30s, or even at Versailles, if you're a a history buff, the the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I that essentially emasculated Germany and set them on the path of towards, you know, international humiliation and then the, the Great Depression and the devaluation of the currency and the inflation and the feeling that people had no power and meaning and purpose in their lives and their identity had been stolen. But, uh, you know, arguably there were things that could have been done earlier and arguably there are things that we could have been doing as a society for the last 30, 40, 50 years to be to make things kinder and more fair and more equal. And I know people who are listening to this who are plant-based and who may be vegan understand that, that there are some very rotten practices and systems at the very heart of our civilization. That if we take it if we look, we see that those of us with with cushy middle class or above 
lifestyles free from want, free from violence, free from pollution, free from daily threats of crime or police brutality or discrimination, micro and macro aggression, lack of social support, lack of economic support, that all this, that all the good things that we have are built on the wants and sufferings of others. That there is a deeply, deeply unfair history that, that must be confronted. Right? But here we are today on Election Day. And it feels to me very much like a fight for the soul of America's future. Right? So, you know, it's not like we have a democracy that's at risk. We've never really had a democracy, have we? So there's a, uh, there's a project. I think it's, if you can go online, you can find them at represent.us, represent.us, that um, has looked at polling on various issues, political issues, issues that can be decided politically. And they look at um, how popular a position is and whether it is in fact in effect. Things like, you know, universal health care or uh, gun control, abortion. We're just looking at if this was a democracy, if we had a democracy, what would our policies be? If, if the will of the majority of the people was actually enacted into policy, into law, what would it look like? And it turns out that there is zero, statistically zero association between popular policies and real policies, between what people want and what actually exists. With, with, with one exception, I have, to, I have to credit Josh Lajani for sharing this, uh, this site and these videos with me. Um, the videos are excellent. So go, go watch them. This was I mean, over a year or two ago he first shared this with me. So there's, <clears throat> which means that what people want, what they say they want, what they vote for, or what they have even have the opportunity to vote for, <laughs> right, doesn't, doesn't manifest, doesn't exist. So you could say, well, that's already a crisis of democracy. It's a lack of democracy. So, you know, what I'm looking at is something far, far lower down on the food chain of, of political terribleness of, you know, but clearly we don't, we don't have a true democracy. And it's, oh, the, the only group, there's a group for whom that's not true, a group for whom what they want actually happens. And of course, it's the 1%. Of course, it's the very wealthy who are able to influence the system, to make the donations, to make, you know, to set the, the boundaries of what is considered even possible. Rather, and, and then, you know, in terms of the game of politics, um, people will not vote for something that they don't think is possible, even if it's the thing they think they want, because nobody thinks it's possible. So here we are. And yes, get out and vote. Right. And know that 
the opposite, like the thing we're fighting for, the outcome that we want, the opposite of (laughs) Carrie Lake and Herschel Walker and Doug Mastriano and Mehmet Oz and all the other proto-fascists or, or, or worse people, even worse people with no opinions whatsoever who are just clinging to the, the Trump power train. Yeah, like, I hope they don't win. And the problem is deeper than that. And the outcome that we're looking for is not just to fight against that. Because fighting against hatred is not enough. And I don't know what is enough. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, those, those of us who have been sort of awakened environmentally to see, like, really, we are destroying not, not necessarily the planet, but the, part of the parts of the planet that can, that can sustain us and, and many other beings that we enjoy sharing the planet with. Like, we're basically heading for unmitigated catastrophe. And at that point, the question is, what do you do? You know, do you, like, I don't, I don't, the question is, what kind of power do I have? It's not me and people like me. People on my side, we don't have military might. We don't have overwhelming force. We don't have, we don't have the guns. We don't have the machineries of politics. We don't have the police departments. We don't have the militaries. All right. The, the people doing the polluting, the oil companies, the, the palm oil extraction, agribusiness, pharmaceutical, the, the, the industries that are, that are polluting and destroying are the ones with the political clout, with the money to make things go their way. So if we don't have that kind of power, what do we have? Is kindness enough? Can our kindness heal those who are suffering so deeply that they are blindly or worse, knowingly destroying the planet for, for their greed? Uh, is love enough to turn people around who are now abandoning decency to, to vote for, for haters. Right. I talked about my family fleeing Austria in the 1930s. You know, I grew up hearing a lot about anti-Semitism, not, not seeing it, not experiencing it. And the last few years, you know, with the, the Tree of Life Synagogue, with threats to, in, in where I grew up in North Jersey that were deemed severe enough by the FBI to cause synagogues to cancel services, uh, where people who are 
outwardly identified as Jewish, like the Orthodox in New York, getting harassed on a more frequent basis. So what, do, what is there for me to do, for us to do, for, for, for anyone who wants to see a world of love and peace and abundance, who wants to move towards healing, who wants a world in which humans are evolved and kind enough to not torture billions of animals at a time, to where humans are evolved and wise enough to not shit in our own drinking water and destroy the planet in the name of short-term profits. A world in which humans are not so scared of one another that any listening, any respect given to another is, is seen as dangerous, as threatening. How do we shift the collective human nervous system from fight or flight into what Stephen Porges calls social engagement, where we can be open, kind, creative, generous, loving? We obviously can't shift people from fight or flight into social engagement through fight. We may, there may need to be fight. World War II, my father needed to go fight. It's not about rolling over and showing our soft underbelly to those people who have been so wounded, so corrupted, so filled with death that they are, una- they are unable to stop themselves. It's no kindness to capitulate. It's no, it's no great spiritual value to let harm come because you didn't act. And with that, right, the, the, right now in the United States, it feels like the hatred is growing, but it's still a minority. It's still, it, has, it has not necessarily metastasized. It's, it's causing damage to all the other systems and all the other organs. Right? But the vast majority, I believe, of Americans do not want to see fascism, do not want to see genocide, do not, do not want to hate on the basis of color, creed, origin, sexual orientation, gender identity. I think the vast majority of us do have the impulse still for decency. Now, history shows us that when it goes too far, as in Nazi Germany, that fear and ideology can grip a nation and, and make decency rare. That can make decency something actually so risky that you could get shot for showing it, for aiding, for resisting evil. We're not there yet. And I think while, while we fight at the ballot box and while we protest, and maybe, as my, my guest Hillel Nori talked about, uh, maybe synagogues have to arm themselves. 
But while all that is going on, let's remember that the outcome we want is a transformed humanity. A humanity in which the traumas of our past, passed on intergenerationally, passed on temporally, from, passed on spatially from one person to another, from the, the person who gets cut off in traffic and then treats their employees shitty and they go home and kick the dog metaphorically or, or really. like It's so easy for trauma to be contagious. And a lot of my self-work over the last 15 years has been recognizing the trauma that lives in me and the trauma that I have unknowingly, or sometimes knowingly but helplessly, passed on to others, to my spouse, to my children, to my neighbors, to my community, to my colleagues. And and working to heal that trauma, and working to heal those relationships, and working to acknowledge, to take responsibility for the things I have done and the things that I do. And to see clearly that it's not a cause necessarily for, for shame or self-denigration, it's simply the reality. The, the, the hand I, I was dealt. And I don't have to take responsibility for the traumas that were inflicted upon me, the traumas that I inherited. But I do have a hand, and I'm playing a game. And I have to lay down those cards one way or the other. And I can play them skillfully and wisely and bring about healing and love, or I can play them unconsciously and continue the patterns. And I don't think this, again, this is not a choice between love or fighting. I think both can and must coexist. I am saying that winning, if, if this midterm turns out to not be the death knell of liberal democracy in the United States, as it, you know, it appears to have been last week in Israel, if this, if our democracy holds and people who still respect vote counting, uh, get in, we haven't solved the problem. We haven't solved the problem of crazies with guns who have become radicalized, who the QAnon believers, who are, who are willing to kill for what they believe is right. Those who would further subjugate women and take away their bodily autonomy. These are political fights, but in the long run, they are about the nervous system. They are about whether human beings can collectively spiral upwards out of trauma rather than what we seem to have been doing for most of our history, which is spiraling deeper and deeper into trauma, or rather the history of humanity since we 
embarked on this domination over nature campaign. Indigenous communities had and have technologies for healing trauma. If there, there were, they had wars, but they understood what they had to do f- to and for their warriors following the war so that the blood and the hatred and the trauma would not infect the entire community. We've lost that. We have lost access to technologies of communal healing. We got to get them back. And I don't know how to do that. I don't have a plan. I don't have a book in me on how to do this. I don't have a proposal. I saw a book that I'm very interested in. The title is Escaping Me. The author's name is Escaping Me, but it's one of the founders of a group called Braver Angels, which tries to get people of very, very different political persuasions to talk and listen to each other and to learn to respect each other. Uh, so if you, if you look up that organization, Braver Angels, you find the uh, founder, you find her book um, about how to, how to begin to connect. Because disconnection only furthers the spiral into greater trauma, into, which, which then spirals into greater trauma, which continues to spiral. We will not you know, like the energizing outcome. The energy that we want is not the fight or flight energy, although it's necessary. Like if we are in fold, if we are in collapse and we are giving up, then fight or flight, the energy of conflict is absolutely required. And that's probably required of us at this point for a while. And at the same time, the energizing outcome a humanity living in peace on the planet, in peace with other species, with each other, with the very energy of nature, with the chi that I'm learning about in Yijing Jing, that comes from a different place. That comes from all of us at the same time as we're fighting out in the world, ending the war inside ourselves, recognizing the ways in which each of us has contributed to harm, the ways in which each of us have internalized oppression, racism, misogyny, homophobia, and to not take this as an indictment of ourselves. but to recognize that it's actually a great privilege and honor to be able to flip the script, to be able to wake up to the point where we say no more, to the point where we say we stand for something bigger, to the point where we say I choose to take responsibility for my actions. I choose to tolerate the waves of shame an anger that arise in me when I feel called out, when I get defensive, when I want to be the victim. 
because we're all we're all everything we're all victims we're all victimized we're all victimizers we are all part of this giant pulsing universe of chi energy and i don't understand the energy medicine part of it i don't understand how or if my thoughts and energy can influence galaxies far away or people down the road. I do know that this is where my power lies. My true power lies in my own willingness to be vulnerable, my own willingness to simultaneously forgive myself and hold myself to the highest standards and my willingness to see others as having the same capacity. Even as I fight to not dismiss others as unredeemable. even as I take stands to recognize the chi in others, to recognize our essential sameness, to recognize that confusion can turn into clarity. It's happened before. When you look at Germany 1944 versus Germany today, They have come to a great deal of clarity as a society. Now, is it threatened now? Possibly. But that doesn't negate the fact that a great transformation took place, a great willingness to take responsibility, to look at the past and to look at one's responsibility toward the present. And I think that's what I love about coaching. That without that responsibility, like Josh and I have talked to each other, like it's the essence of coaching is getting our clients to stop bullshitting themselves. And I think the essence of being a human being in these times is to stop bullshitting ourselves. The truth, it's a trite saying, the truth really can set us free. That's where I'm spending my days pushing, pushing myself to accept more and more of the truth about who I am, what I've done, what's worked, what hasn't, what has been kind, what has been unkind, what has been selfish, what has been selfless, what has been in between. And the more I own, and here's the wonderful paradox of coaching in the business world, as well as anywhere, the more I am willing to own and take responsibility for, the more powerful I get. The more I just see the problem is out there, the weaker I am. So I'm finishing my walk. I'm gonna go to the office, hopefully this recorded. Hopefully it's gonna sound good enough to share with you. So today's a big day. 
And whatever happens tomorrow is a big day too. And six months from now is a big day. And really all we have is the now, right? This moment. To breathe. To feel the life flowing through us. What a trip. What a trip that anything exists. Right? We are all impossibilities. Statistical anomalies. And yet we we exist. This world exists. And we're breathing. Robert Pang ends... Um, the breathing meditation by inviting us to feel the sweetness of every single breath. And I think that's a good place to start. It's a good place for me to end. And to wish you all, to wish you and me and all of us the courage to face what's coming, to face ourselves, and to hold on to an outcome that, while there might be fighting involved, an outcome that transcends fighting, an outcome that includes everyone and everything. So thanks for joining me on this walk. Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear your comments. If you want to send them on the blog or on the Facebook Plant Yourself page. Um, And let's continue. Let's continue our work. Let's continue our love. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Ernie Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.